protests in the streets, buildings set ablaze, police in riot gear clashing with protesters. What I just described sounds like a recap of last night's news cycle, but 55 years ago, this was the scene across America. As we are today, America was gripped with intense racial strife in the lead up to and passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And this is why, as we stand tonight, three days before its 55th anniversary, we want to take a moment to look back at our past to learn from it as we work to shape our future. My name is Nona Jones, and I'm the founder of the Faith and Prejudice Movement. Nathan Rutstein once said that prejudice is an emotional commitment to ignorance. The Faith and Prejudice Movement exists to demonstrate our faith in God through the work of confronting and dismantling systemic racism in America. We use this platform to lift the voices of civil rights leaders, theologians, scholars, and advocates who have dedicated their lives and work to advancing racial equity. I invite you to listen and learn so that we can mobilize our collective energy toward lasting change in this country. Launching the Faith and Prejudice Movement was a calling from God. I often joke with people that I didn't envision spending my summer building a national organization to gather the church together to confront and dismantle racism in America. If I'm honest, I was looking forward to sleeping in on the weekends and swimming in the pool with my children. But when we know the voice of God, his plans will always take precedent over ours. And this is the mark of our faith. We surrender our personal will at the altar of our faith in Christ, which is why this next conversation is so important to me and our team. Faith and prejudice would not be what it is if we didn't have a coalition of pastors who locked arms with us and brought their churches to this table to work together. But it hasn't been without cost. If the emails and messages I get are any indication, I know the pastors who are walking alongside of us are similarly being challenged in every way, often by the very people they have loved and served for years. You see, behind the title and the platform and the lights are human beings. People who similarly heard the voice of God and allowed his will to change their plan. But what do you do when God calls you to lead in uncomfortable spaces? In places where people walk away from you because they don't agree or don't understand. Tonight, my friends Ryan Collins and Odell Dickerson are asking these questions to a group of pastors who have felt the sting of loss while leading in this difficult time. Let's not only listen and learn, but let's commit to pray for our pastors. Thank you everybody for joining us today at Faith and Prejudice. Uh, Odell and I are privileged and honored to be joined by three incredible pastors to talk about what it looks like to lead a church during this season of social unrest. We are joined by Pastor Yasmin Ruhi of Centerset Church in San Jose, California, Pastor Ken Clater of Alive Church in Gainesville, Florida, and Pastor Sean Nefsted of Fellowship Church in Antioch, California. Um, pastors, thank you so much for joining us today. 
Before we jump into this conversation, would you just take a moment to share a little bit about who you are and your background to our audience? Yasmin, would, would you start us off? Uh, sure. Well, thank you, first of all, for having me. It's an honor. Uh, my husband and I planted a church in Silicon Valley about two and a half years ago. Uh, before that, I am born and raised in Italy. I am of Middle Eastern descent, so I come to you from a completely different point of view. Um, I received Christ about almost 22 years ago, so it has been a journey, and I think I just dated myself a little bit. So um, that's a little bit on us. We lead Centerset Church, just like you said, in San Jose, California, and it's been an awesome journey, an awesome journey. So good. Thank you again for joining us. And, and Pastor Ken. Uh, yeah, I'm Ken Clater. My wife and I, Tabitha, we lead a live church in Gainesville and Orlando, Florida now. I'm originally from West Virginia, go Mountaineers, shameless plug. Um, after graduating from college with a business degree, never thought I would be a pastor, thought I would be a club owner, thought I would be own restaurants. Um, went to Washington, D.C., got filled with the Holy Spirit, got completely changed my life, called me into ministry. And uh, we had a Bible story. My wife got healed from 12 years of depression. Uh, we overcame financial problems. Uh, we lived in a one-bedroom apartment with roaches and mice. We turned everything around. By our mid-20s, probably made over $700,000 for the year. God calls us out of our um, experience to say, hey, I want you to go and start a, chance, a church in Gainesville. I had to Google it to figure out where Gainesville was. We left Washington, D.C. at the top of our business in 2006, 2007, right before the recession, and we started the church. And so now we've been lead pastors for 13 years, and we have two locations. And, uh, you know, God is good, and we're still alive. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Thank you, Pastor Ken. And Pastor Sean, I'm getting a prophetic word that you have a book coming out. <laughs> we do. August the 18th. It actually is part of our story, really, our journey. I started the church when I was 24 years old, which you have to be half crazy to start a church at 24. Uh, but our city was in luck. I'm three-quarter crazy on my daddy's side. I'm fifth-generation pastor, really, on both sides of the family. And we started the church real fast. Uh, didn't I mean, it's like back in the day, you hang a sign, you know? And we thought that you'd just build a great church by preaching your guts out and having good worship, and the church would grow. Well, it wasn't for us. And uh, three years in, four years in, five, six years in, zero growth. And I'm literally folded up underneath my desk like origami trying to have a conversation with God saying, God, I've hit my lid. It's, and here's what's scary. I accepted it. You know, it's like when quitting doesn't just seem reasonable. It seems like your only option. Wow. And I was ready to throw in the towel, ready to give up in what I call the dip. And so the whole message uh, that God freed me from depression and fear and anxiety that that played itself out in my in my body, my physical body dropped down to 125 pounds and just was at the end of my rope and at the end of my hope. And so God gave me some keys to help people climb out of the dip. Uh, we've since climbed out of the dip, and God has done some amazing things in our church. We've seen phenomenal growth, not just in numbers, but also in the, in our lives. Like, where would all these other people be had we given up? So the whole idea is I want to help you climb out of the dip. And, and there's your destiny is literally on the other side of your dip. There are people waiting for you on the other side of the dip. And so that has been our our journey. And uh, my wife and I pastor the church. Now this is going on 17 years, but God has blown our minds. So there is hope and there is healing. 
Oh, it's so good, Sean. And I can't wait for um, to, to read the book. And I know you guys are doing amazing things there at Fellowship Church. And then, of course, I'm, I'm joined by my dear friend, Odell Dickerson, who's the COO of New Psalmist Baptist Church. And, and so we're just going to start this discussion with you guys. Um, and we'll start with this question. And Ken, um, I'll have you start us off in answering this. But um, each of you has built um, multiracial uh, churches, and you all have different uh, racial backgrounds. Uh, what has been the most challenging aspect to building and leading a racially diverse church? Ken? Well, for 10 years, we tried to be a church for all people. We put it on our business cards. We put it on um, our signs. Uh, we put it on our bulletins. But for 10 years, we were 99% Black. And people of different races and backgrounds would come, but they just wouldn't stay. And so for me, that was challenging because I felt when God first called me to ministry, he called me to lead a multiracial, multigenerational, multiethnic church. But really, truthfully, as a black guy, I did not have a lot of models, especially in the South. And so Gainesville has more of a Southern Georgia kind of a feel. And so, I mean, there's a few models of NFL players and different people who have multiracial churches as a black guy, but I didn't have a big model as a black man to build a multiracial church. So for me, um, I mean, it was one of those things that really, uh, it, it was just disappointing. It was disappointing to me that whites and blacks, and let me use those terms um, interchangeably, of course, generally, you can brown, yellow, red, throw yourself in there. Monday through Friday, we could make money together in corporate America as long as the paper was green. On Saturday, we could uh, win championships together, passing the football together, because nobody cared what color you were in the locker room. But just like Dr. King said, still Sunday was the most segregated time of our week, and that bugged me. And I believe that the reason that it annoyed me so much um, is because of John chapter 13, I believe. It says that by this, all men will know that we are his disciples, indeed, if we have love one for another. Meaning that atheists and agnostic friends and family that we have are looking to see if we can reach across the aisle to see, you know what, those people be real disciples. But unfortunately, when the world looks to the church, we're just as divided as they happen to be. And I just believe this is the time for the church to stand up and be the answer that the world is looking for. Wow, that's, that's good. So good. Yasmin, what are your thoughts? Uh, I would have to chime in in complete agreement with that. I think that uh, the call to actually plant a church, well, we were at an all Middle Eastern church prior to this, right? And so for us, a big burden that we had was all of our friends. All of our friends look different. I've had Asian friends, black, like everything. And so for me, it was, hey, I don't want them to come to this building where it's all just one language. I believe that God created all of us. And just like Ken was saying, I don't see any difference. When we're all under the banner of Christ, we're all the same. We all bleed the same. And he died for all of us. So for me and my husband, it was, hey, can we create a church really for the unchurched? But what we found in the um, church planning process was that, first of all, I think what we were told also was you are going to be successful if you're white and we didn't look white and nor are we white. Or if you were black, if you were a football player and I'm like, well, I'm not a football player and I'm not black, but I have this call and this mandate from Jesus. And I believe that there's people that we're going to reach. And so for us, we have a multi-ethnic and multi-racial church, but I'll tell you the least amount uh, I would say whites are the least amount of people you will find in our church. And I wish that it wasn't that case. 
But I think that even in the church planning process, the fundraising aspect of it, uh, we found out real quick um, what we were made out of. And I that more than anything broke my heart to see that there was a, such a racial divide in the church because the world is watching us. Um, and I think that we ought to bear witness yeah. with love and with unity, uh, nor Jew, nor Gentile, right? And um, yeah, so I, I think that it's um, it's about time to bring that those barriers down and bring the real love of Jesus forward. Good. So good. Sean. Uh, I'm a white boy, born in the Philippines, raised in East Oakland, married to a Latina. So, I mean, we kind of, that, that really is the, the racial makeup of our church. And somebody was inviting somebody to our church one time and they said, oh, no, I don't want to go. I'll stand out. And one of the greatest compliments we got as a church is they said, don't worry, nobody stands out at our church. <laughs> and it really is true. We are not a melting pot. We're family. And here's the crazy thing about that whole idea. Uh, we've been pastoring for 17 years, and it's been diverse since, the, since day one. Um, but you work at that. You teach family. You teach unity. Like the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, he's like, guys, we are all one body. We're one family. Ephesians is replete with the topic of the idea that we're one, and Jesus comes and he says, hey, there's Jews and there's Gentiles, humongous racial tension, and Jesus he takes that dividing wall and just destroys it. Doesn't just destroy the wall, pulls the two sides together and says, literally, from this, I will now make a new humanity. I will make a new uh, family, if you will. And so I think you have to see people as family. Like you think of your own physical family. How different are you than your own family? You ever been to a family reunion? Yes. Come on, how many got that crazy cousin? <laughs> if you didn't raise your hand, that's probably never, you. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> But right. your family, you're if you didn't so play, different. You are the crazy cousin. <laughs> exactly. But we're so different, but we're family. You know, the Bible even says when a husband and wife get together, they become one. Well, my wife and I could not be any different. I'm white. She's Nicaraguan. She's introvert. I'm extrovert. She wants to watch Down Abbey. I want to watch like Dumb and Dumber, you know, but we're we're not set the same. And I think that that's a big deal right now is that when we call for unity, when Jesus calls for unity, he's not calling for sameness. Yeah. He's calling for harmony. Like if you're a singer or a musician, you, you would hate to have a song with just one note, you know, like yeah. on Christ, a solid rock, I stand all like you're not even venturing into any other notes. Just like God's heart's not for us to be. It just same or one note. It's to celebrate the diversity of the body of Christ and to show honor, value, love. Mm. And when there's harmony, you know, a harmony doesn't a harmony doesn't compete. It complements. Mm. On on the piano, I play piano, and I by the way, I play with the black and white keys together, <laughs> and it's it's a it brings about a beautiful sound. And if you're able to teach people that we don't get to choose our family. But you value family, fight for family. Family would get you to get up at three o'clock in the morning to go to the emergency room and not call it a sacrifice. Like, like so it's, it's the view of how do you view people? Do you view them as church attenders or another race? Or do we see them as family? Can you add value? Wow. Wow. That's really good. That's really good. Sean, there's a song that talks about the black and white keys 
on the piano, Ebony and Ivory. <laughs> that, that's, <laughs> that's, that's right. That's a great song. And it, and it speaks just to that. But um, all of you make great, great points. Um, I, I'd like to throw a second question at you guys. And um, I'm going to start with Yasmin. But um, Dr. King says that injustice um, anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And we all 